Welcome to Vernacular Verbose, Jethro Tull Podcast. My name is Joey Vetter. My name is Eugene Manco. And today we're taking a look at Songs from the Wood, released in 1977. If you enjoy the podcast and are feeling generous, you can now support us on Ko-fi at ko-fi.com slash vernacular verbose. Any donations will go right back into producing the podcast by helping us cover our editing costs. Again, that's ko-fi.com slash vernacular verbose. So this is sort of famously the beginning of what people often call the folk trilogy that ends the 1970s and which ends sort of the golden age or the classic era of the band. Eugene, first I want to ask you if you sort of agree with the whole conception of the folk trilogy consisting of Songs from the Wood, Heavy Horses, Stormwatch. People often view those three albums as sort of somewhat of this kind of continuous trilogy that's linked to each other. And I'm curious how you feel about that, if you kind of agree with that. Well, yes and no, I think, because on the one hand, they do feel like, uh, like pieces, pieces of a whole because even Stormwatch has those little folk motifs, has the warm sporran track that brings us back to, to the two preceding albums. And the mood of the albums goes gradually like darker throughout them. So there mm-hmm. is a progression. Uh, I also know that Ian Anderson doesn't view Stormwatch as, uh, as the continuation of Songs from the Wood and Heavy Horses. Uh, and uh, he he said that just people like things that, that go in threes. That's why people kind of lump them together. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, it's kind of the last era of the of the classic Tal lineup. And singling out Stormwatch doesn't make a lot of sense. But to me, yes, there is more kinship between Songs from the Wood and Heavy Horses. They are more like a diptych. Uh, than th- than a trilogy like Stormwatch would be would be a postscriptum to that rather than a book of its own rather than part three of a trilogy. Yeah, I agree with that. I think it's sort of a yes and no answer because they there's clearly a very clear switch to a folk sound, although the band has said that there wasn't like a you know a conscious decision to do that to suddenly mm-hmm. switch the sound of the band over and do three albums in that style or whatever but at the same time i think there are a lot of connections especially the first two like you said between songs from the wood and heavy horses there's some big connections between those two things but they're also kind of two sides of a coin mm-hmm. where songs from the wood is very fantastical very fantasy oriented and, and it's a lot more light-hearted than a lot of the stuff that comes after it and Heavy Horses is much more sober, down-to-earth, kind of pragmatic-sounding. Mm-hmm. And then I think you're right that Stormwatch is a little bit of a, I don't know, stepchild. It's not, it's not the same as the past two. And in a way, I can see an argument that they shouldn't be considered uh, lumped together with the other two. But uh, I think for purposes of kind of the band era, the cohesion of the band, the fact that the band split up right after, and the fact that it, in a lot of ways, still continues a lot of the folk imagery and things like that, it's kind of lumped together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Stormwatch feels heavier, mm-hmm. and musically and anthematically, and while in Songs from the Woods and Heavy Horses we have um, like the first fascination with the countryside on Songs from the Wood, and the realization of things that come with it 
on heavy horses. Yeah. Uh, Stonewatch takes a different turn uh, and a more a broader look at what's going mm -hmm. on in the world. And I'm not saying that I'm not singling out Stonewatch to say that Songs from the Wood and Heavy Horses are two masterpieces and Songs and Stonewatch is an afterthought. No, because I love Stonewatch. Yeah, I remember you and I were talking uh, off the podcast once, and you actually mentioned that of these three albums, that Songs from the Wood is your least favorite. Not that you dislike it, but that, that you is, prefer the that others more. That is true. It's like uh, I would. I, I'm not going to bash like the quality of the album because obviously it's very good. It's yeah. just like Songs from the Wood is Tal's best album that I never listened to hmm. and never have never want to listen to because it just doesn't resonate with me like other albums do. Yeah, that's a really hot take I think among Tal fans. Yeah, I'm sure I'm sure going to draw the ire of our listeners <laughs> in saying that Songs from the Wood is anything other than one of Tal's best albums, but it's just it's just not not my kind of jam, you know, All those uh, very very positive and cheerful songs about prancing about in nature and forgetting all of our cares and being slightly horny all of the time. Uh <laughs> I'm just, I prefer the other side of, of Ian's songwriting and of Tull's music. Uh -huh. I think when you look at fan opinion about this album, I mean, I think it's pretty obvious for any fan, but this is one of the albums that there's almost unanimous sort of uh, consensus on that it's one of the absolute best Tull albums. And uh, I would agree with that myself. This is a top five album for me. Uh -huh. And w whenever I listen to it, uh, today included when I listen to it, just the thing that I thought of was just like, what a wonderful album this is. And that, that's kind of what it always comes to for me is that, like you said, so <laughs> the joyfulness of it, uh, I take as quite a positive. I think the joyfulness is quite infectious in this album. And uh, I I get so much out of it. Uh -huh. uh, it's, it's a really optimistic sounding record in a lot of ways. And uh, it's optimistic in the classic antiquated way that Toll is, that sort of only Toll can do where it's rooted in this fantasy folk, somewhat kind of medieval-ish world, um, bringing that forward sort of to the present and uh, finding some kind of connection. This, the way they do that on this album, paired with a lot of the excellent musical passages and stuff, uh, is really just brilliant. And I, I, this is one of those albums, sort of like Thick as a Brick I mentioned, where I almost never get tired of hearing this album. It, it's just always a huge pleasure for me to listen to it. Well, that's good. We're kind of... <clears throat> we're representing two sides of, mm -hmm. well, maybe non-existent two sides, as you mentioned, because uh, there's much consensus about this album in the in the tall fan base, and I am mm -hmm. in clearly a very small minority. But mm -hmm. I, I, I don't mind. I, again, I don't think it's bad. I just don't connect with it. I don't yeah. connect with the with this cheerfulness. It's worth mentioning that the the basic uh, switch towards a lot of the lyrical content, so things like uh, forestry and fantasy, and even mm -hmm. continuing on into sort of the realities of you know hard life and hard labor in the country and that kind of thing. These were all inspired by things were, that were actually happening with Ian Anderson in his own life, because because in '76, uh, the year they recorded this album, he bought a country estate out in Buckinghamshire, and that was kind of what got him thinking about living in the countryside, being a citizen of, you know, the British countryside, that kind of thing. And I suspect, as you mentioned, that as the realities of what that life is like, especially as he started going in on the salmon farm thing, 
that uh, that was sort of influenced a lot of the more pragmatic and less fanciful content of uh, things like Heavy Horses. Yeah, I, I would agree. I think the fanciful part is also as told in the in the Stephen Wilson booklet, and I'm sure uh, many times elsewhere, uh, by the, the book uh, that uh, manager Joe Lustig yeah. gave him as a present, the folklore myths and legends of Britain, uh, which was full of th that sort of information that Ian decided to incorporate into the stories. Yeah, in, in absolutely. Songs. I actually, just funnily enough, I looked up uh, a copy of that same book uh -huh. online just because I was curious a couple of years ago, and I saw that it's it's really rare and out of print and going for some ridiculous price now. So <laughs> I wonder if the price is because it was mentioned by Ian Anderson or something. Well, it could be both. Yeah, the, the few last copies have been snatched by diehard Tal fans, just like the box sets. Uh huh. If anybody has a thick as a brick box set they want to sell me, let me know. <laughs> so one of the things it mentions in the booklet for this is that uh, the recording was apparently very happy. It was very happy mm -hmm. times for the band, and that they it was sort of a level of low, an era of low tension for mm -hmm. the band. They were all kind of getting along, and they were working on a similar creative wavelength, which they mentioned was probably in part because they were back in the UK now after having done the past two albums abroad in Monaco. Yeah, yeah, they, they were clearly much fed up with that. I'm just happy to be home. Mm -hmm. What do you think about the cover art? I don't mind it. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, no, it, it, it's a good cover, I think, compositionally. I don't think I ever saw that cover art in, except from digitally, in any kind of large format. I've never held uh, a vinyl record in my hands of Songs from the Wood, and I don't think I've even had a CD, because the CD of Songs from the Wood that I had was that kind of early early 2000s Russian bootleg that was paired on the same disc with the walk into light which oh, is yeah. kind of <laughs> ridiculous yeah. so uh, all of my all of my first songs from the wood covers were like tiny uh, 320 by 320 pixels images i couldn't uh i didn't know there was a dog on the on the cover until very much later yeah, it's kind of hard to see. Yeah, I wish it was, uh, I don't know, more prominent because dogs are great. <laughs> and I I also didn't know that uh, the Kitchen Pros and Gutter Rhymes line was on the cover. Yeah, it's kind of funny. Uh, come to think of it, it actually... Um, there is something in common between all those uh, that f folk rock trilogy in that uh, all those al album album covers have lines from the lyrics on them. I think Heavy Horses does too. Oh yeah, that's true. Instead of Stormwatch. And they all have some depiction of Ian on the front. Yeah. Well, Stormwatch kind of has an Ian-like character as many other yeah. albums uh, do. But yeah. All of those, all of those albums have a line from the lyrics. Uh, like Stormwatch has got lines joining for in Discord, etc. Mm. Uh, and it's an interesting decision, and it's interesting that they never did that again. So that's another another argument for the trilogy kind of concept. Yeah. I like the cover art a lot. Um, mm -hmm. 
I, I, I still kind of think about how it could have been better because I think there's a couple other pieces of key art from that era that maybe could have made a better cover. Mm-hmm. But I think comp- compositionally it works really well. Yeah, uh, I like um, Ian's facial expression. <laughs> kind of the way he's <laughs> looking at the camera is very interesting. But I remember there's um, other photos from that same session which uh, have members of the band in kind of the same set, the same force. And I, I kind of wonder if uh, a photo with the entire band together in one would have made for a better cover or a more suitable cover. I also think uh, I really like the back cover, which is the image that we use for the podcast on the with the, the stump with the record uh-huh, needle on yeah. it. And I kind of wonder if that actually might have even been a better uh, cover art, just that with the album title on it. But, I mean, in general, I like it. There's a lot of pieces of art from that era that I like a lot, and I think uh, there's a couple of different uh, options they could have used that would have been really good. Yeah, I really like the lettering on the cover. Mm-hmm. It's sort of plain, but uh, it's clearly hand-drawn. It's not a, a typeface yeah. that's been put on there. Uh, it's hand-lettered, but in a very careful manner. And... looks very good very very sort of balanced and Mm complements the image yeah i actually remember reading for a long time a bunch of different stuff about how the cover art is actually not a photo but it's a painting it was supposed to be a painting but they decided against it yeah because i was gonna say i don't think that's right because there's other photos of band members in the same like Mm -hmm. set so i didn't think it was a painting now i think uh there's uh, stuff about that in the booklet uh, that ian wanted to commission a painting by a guy who made photos look like paintings so they made these photos to turn them into sort of paintings but i think he painted over the photos or something like that uh but uh they ultimately decided against it because it would look kind of contrived and I, I agree. I don't. I think it would have been sort of kitschy in a way, like too much, too much like a sort of cheap painting ha- hanging in a country squire's house. So there's one interesting thing we can mention on the member lineup. On this member lineup on this album, we have Ian Anderson, vocals, flute, acoustic guitar, Martin Barr on electric guitar, John Glasscock on bass, Barry Barlow on drums, John Evans on keyboards, and for the first time. David Palmer and now D. Palmer on as a second keyboardist. Mm-hmm. So D. Palmer, who had for years, as we've talked about, been sort of the orchestral arranger for the band, had been invited to join, I think, the Too Old to Rock and Roll Tour in 76 as a second keyboardist. And this kind of opens up a new era for Tull in a way in that there's a lot more uh, classical influence, I think. I think there's a lot of different things that Palmer brought into the band in terms of classical composition influence. And as well as sort of instrument choice. So, for example, the portative pipe organ, which yeah. was something that Palmer introduced into the band, which is now, uh, I think, became a really huge part of the sound of not just this album, but the next two also. Yeah, that's true. I think it works so brilliantly with the flute because of the very close timbre, but a very different attack. And the, mm-hmm. so the, they are both, the flute and the portative pipe organ are both the instruments based on, on a whistle. Yeah, Con- construction, but obviously the portative organ will have uh, like a very smooth sound, and and the sound of the of the pipes will be closer to a recorder rather than a transverse flute, mm-hmm. and th- that's what makes makes them different uh, and 
but uh, allows them to work together. I think it would have been very, very difficult uh, to be in tune uh, between the organ and the, f uh, and the flute, and I kind of marvel at these duets because I, I, I feel it would have been a challenge. Yeah. Yeah, it's a really interesting thing that uh, is kind of entirely as a result of Dee Palmer. Like, mm -hmm. I, I, don't, I think there's that wouldn't have come into the band. Yeah, that's true. If not for that contribution. That's true, because I think uh, she found that uh, an organ in some studio and they recorded a, a bit of it for a song and then the organ was gone. So uh, they had to commission a new one. Yeah. Mm -hmm. from, from, the, from, from the same makers and even brought it on tour uh, subsequently and Terry Ellis wanted to paint it black yeah that's which a funny story <laughs> vehemently refused yeah there's a lot of really good stories in the booklet yeah and even a, a photo of the sad organ but yeah it, it's a very cool looking instrument very unusual mm -hmm. normally uh, normally with the even like uh, chamber uh, pipe organs like a small pipe organs you don't have the pipes housed in a glass box, like an aquarium, which this one does. Yeah, yeah, it's very interesting looking. Track one, Songs from the Wood. Let me bring you songs from the wood To make you feel much better than you could know Better than you could dust you down So there's a lot that we can talk about on this one just right off the bat. There's a lot going on in this song. It's kind of amazing when you look at it from like a macro perspective. There's, yeah. there's so many different things happening here. So very, at the very beginning, we start off with uh, the a cappella opening, mm -hmm. kind of like a barbershop quartet style opening. Not not really barbershop quartet because I think barbershop quartet is very much rooted in uh, functional harmonies and things like resolutions. You've got the famous barbershop chord which is a dominant seventh chord that a lot of barbershop music utilizes. While here, there's a lot of um, quartal harmony, which gives us an almost uh, medieval-like feeling. I don't even know the difference, so that shows what I know. Well, a quartal, a quartal chord is a chord, uh, as opposed to a chord based, based on a third, so like we normally, the normal chords played on, on guitars and pianos and things. Uh, mm -hmm. It's a chord that, that, that is a stack of fourths, which gives it a very open and very sort of unrooted kind of feeling. The guitar players will know these chords as uh, sus2 and sus4, uh, which is uh, sort of the, the counterpart of a piano quartal chord uh, as played on a guitar. Uh, but uh, quartal chords, quartal harmonies have been uh, rediscovered at first in the um, early 20th century by composers such as Ravel and then by in the mi middle of the century by jazz musicians and there's a lot of that kind of thing in modal jazz like you will, will hear I don't know on Miles Davis's kind of blue mm. and the quartal harmony in the choirs and in, in songs from the wood um, it gives it that kind of an unresolved and it gives it a little bit of a Gregorian feeling, if you will. It sticks out a lot because it's not something that you really hear much on the other tall material. It's really something that it really catches your ear from the very beginning and that it's something very unique and kind of new. But the reason I say there's a lot going on here is because there's just so many different sections to the music. It, you know, it changes a lot. There's lots of time signature changes. I did a cover of this song on my drum YouTube channel, and so I'm I'm fairly well familiar with kind of the 
the way the drums are structured in it. And there's just so much happening. It's very orchestral in the stopping and starting and that kind of thing. Yeah, I, th I kind of feel that it has an almost yes-like flow with mm -hmm. a very classical approach to musical themes, which Tal didn't really do before this. Um, I think with with the yes, their kind of approach to composition was like everyone brought a little piece that they had, and Rick Wakeman stitched them together, and then they mm -hmm. learned to play the whole thing. Uh, I think it was a little bit would would have been a little bit different here with Tall, but there's uh, famously a lot of contributions on this album from Deep Palmer and from Martin Barr specifically. Yeah. Uh, so it would have been pieces contributed by different members that right. have been combined into a single arrangement. But it sounds quite cohesive to me, like it doesn't yes. sound stitched together. Yeah, that's, you know, the brilliant arrangement mm -hmm. contributed by De Palmer. There's kind of, there's a place in this song where I start losing sense of the space I'm supposed to be in, because the instruments have a different feel to them, uh, bet between themselves. Uh, like after the orchestral symbols come in, which uh, on live uh, performances Ian played himself. Yeah. I think it was kind of a showpiece. There's some mandolins that are coming in and the synth at the same time. And they feel to me to be like in a very d distinct, different spaces to each other. That's kind of my little sort of gripe with the, with the way this, this track was recorded, not written. Oh, when the quiet cart part kind of comes back? Yeah. Also, on the Stephen Wilson remaster, what I noticed is that the choirs in the, in the very beginning, the uh, a cappella part, are kind of darker. Hmm. Uh, they have less high-end than on the previous versions of, the, of this album. I, I don't really know why that decision was taken. Hmm. Yeah. What do you think of the live version of Songs from the Woods, uh, where they cut away the, fir the first verse and just starts with poppies? Yeah, that's interesting. It, uh, if I remember right, the live version I'm thinking of, it actually starts with the bridge from Pibroch, and then it goes into Songs from the Wood. Uh, yeah, it sometimes does and sometimes doesn't. Uh -huh. uh, yeah, uh, the, the old version does start from Pibroch, I think. Pibroch, okay. Yeah, it's, it's yeah, the Scottish word should be Pibroch. <laughs> uh, and sometimes I think on the late latest tours, I just heard uh, heard it like "Let me bring you songs from the wood," uh, yeah. "Poppies red and roses f filled with summer rain." Just with, with the entire first verse just discarded. Kind of always feels jarring to me. I, I'd probably prefer it to be honest in the live context, at least. Uh -huh. um, the only version I'm really familiar with, I've seen it live by Ian. I think he started with the like the proper beginning, but the one I'm thinking of is the one from the Madison Square Garden '78 version, uh -huh. where they start with the P Rock Bridge. Mm -hmm. Well, I don't know. The, the first verse just puts me in the mood for this song. It kind of mm -hmm. uh, it's preparatory. It sets sets the setting, if you will excuse the tautology and and without it uh i kind of always get a little bit of a whiplash mm. yeah like oh am i supposed to be rejoicing already <laughs> i haven't told to be re to rejoice <laughs> I, that second half uh, really is great with that guitar riff i think it's one of the great sort of musical passages of the band's mm -hmm. history yeah that's pretty good yeah there's another thing uh <laughs> kind of a minor 
minor gripe about this song is I don't like the b better that Ian is doing at the end. I don't know. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. The, 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 the stuttering uh, sort of thing. I don't know why he does that. Why, why, why they wouldn't just syncopate, just leave a leave a, leave a, leave an open beat on on that. Yeah, I haven't, <laughs> I haven't even thought about that. I never even like passed through my mind until you mentioned it. <laughs> There's a lot of uh, interesting drum stuff happening here, uh -huh. in addition to the the orchestral symbols that you already mentioned. So there's quite a lot of double bass here, which we've we've mentioned that there's more and more double bass increasing, and there's also quite a lot on this album as well. So there's a bit happening here, and there's some really cool, like little odd drum fills, including double bass. And then there's I'm not sure if it's a timpani or if it's just a floor tom being sort of built up to sound like a timpani, but at the very end, before the quiet part comes back, there's that kind of sound. Well, um, Barry, I think, is credited with a lot of uh, supplementary drums. Yeah, on this on this record, so it could have been something, something odd like I mean, there's uh, we we definitely know that there are specific medieval drums on I think Velvet Green, right? <clears throat> I, I don't think this is one of them, but yeah. And like you said, the synthesizers are back for the first time uh, since being absent in the past two. Mm -hmm. And there's not a ton of synth on the album, but there's a decent amount. Yeah, uh, the kind of the, the low synth uh, on, on this track I like very much. Mm -hmm. It's the kind of a string synth synth synthesizer, uh, along with the mandolins. That kind of confuses me as to where am I supposed to feel, you know? Yeah. Like I am. It's a very expansive feel mm -hmm. to me, with when those synths come in on that part. Yeah, but the, there are also instruments that feel that feel close, right? So the, there are instruments with a feeling of a large space and a feeling of, feeling of a small space, uh, all combined together. That's what kind of gives me that conf confusing feel. Maybe it didn't give give me that when I listened to the like 2003 remaster, but on Stephen Wilson's mix, it's very obvious because you can hear more detail. Mm -hmm. It's worth mentioning, we're recording this in August, but this episode is coming out in early September, and I think that's a pretty good time to be listening to not just this album, but the next two as well, because these three albums have always been very much autumn albums to me. I think, to me, Songs from the Woods has always been the a May kind of album instead. Really? Even Yeah, even though we've got an, a clearly an autumn scene on the cover. But mm -hmm. yeah, to me, I, I always listen to it uh, in late spring, early summer. Mm -hmm. So it was very. It's a very green album. Yeah, it's cool. Uh, track two, Jack in the Green. Have you seen the Jack in the Green with his long tail hanging down? What I immediately noticed about uh, this track as I listened to it and kind of analyzed what was going on, there's a very narrative use of key, because. Uh, the verses are very major, and the only place we go to minor is on the more introspective uh, chorus, where Ian starts questioning kind of the character uh, and the the idea of this uh, guardian of nature, whether this guardian of nature is still alive, with, is still active with things that are going on. So the, 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 it's a little bit, you know. Um, 
the ideas that um, were further developed on heavy horses. We have a, a, the little, a, a little seed of them in this song here, uh, like, uh, does the green sti still run deep in your heart? Or will these changing times, motorways, power lights keep, keep us apart? That, that's kind of interesting. Yeah, it, it, it sticks out for me. Well, first of all, I think a lot of people know, but this is basically like a solo Ian Anderson song that even though there's electric guitar and bass and drums on it, Ian Anderson is the only performer on it. And uh, he talks in the booklet about how it was just him and an engineer in the studio doing the song. And so I can kind of imagine what that looks like. It's kind of fun. So I always, this is kind of a good uh, thing to mention is that I am the kind of person who doesn't really like to read lyrics, as strange as that may sound. I pretty much never look up lyrics because I actually prefer, even if I mishear something, I, you know, sometimes I prefer the misheard thing. So yeah, that, uh, that has ruined years of what I thought this song was about because I thought the end was like a reference to suddenly jutting forth to the the modern kind of Cold War climate talking about the, the missile rush, but instead it's missile thrush, <laughs> which I had no idea about. Well, you still can keep that memory, you know. Yeah, I'm gonna have to. You're gonna you have, you have, you, you have both versions now for yourself. Yeah. Like your individual version of Jack and the Green. Like the secret, the secret, the secret message. It's very surprising to me in this song uh, that the drum arrangement held, held up uh, in the live performances for so long uh, because uh, it's the it's very easily explained the, the drum part in this song uh, by the fact that it's been Ian playing it so it's not a rhythm it's just punctuation it's very sparse it just um, emphasizes certain phrases and I can't vouch for for the time that it's been changed but uh, I checked like an 82 version uh, from from the 1982 Broadsword tour and it was still, uh, the drums still sounded just like on the album. And then I listened to a version on Living With The Past uh, from 2002, and by, by then it became a fuller drum part. So I don't know whether Doin uh, did it straight away, or just gradually filled it out as the years went by. Do you know anything about that? Well, one thing I would say about it is that the 82 version, and I know the version you're talking about, that was done with Jerry Conway on the drums, who... Uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> Jerry is kind of an interesting drummer in the tall drummer pantheon in that he was kind of the only uh, simplistic, streamlined tall drummer that the band ever had, sort of. So it, it doesn't surprise me that Jerry Conway kind of kept it to that simple arrangement. But that being said, I mean, I think Barry did the same thing when they played this song, yeah. so it was it was kept, you know, very simple. Uh, but yeah, I mean, my guess would be that would be an instruction from Ian. Uh, but I mean, maybe over time he just sort of allowed Doan to take more of what he heard from it. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it's kind of just a, it's just toms and a cymbal. And I think there may be a snare in there at some point. But I think it's clearly not, you know, Ian sitting at a drum set. It's just kind of playing on rack toms and a cymbal or something. Yeah, probably. Conceivably, he could have done that standing up. Yeah, that's how I've always pictured it. Uh-huh. Yeah, I don't really have a lot to say about this one, to be honest. I, I like it. Uh, I, I don't think it's a clever song. I think a lot of the lyrics are kind of, they're fun to listen to, but I, I don't really have a lot that I can really divine from it, I guess. You know, the one thing that was exciting to me about it has now been disproven as a tall conspiracy theory, so... <laughs> no, no, you, you can start a rumor that has been intentional. Yeah. 
Yeah, I don't think I um, actually saw lots of mentions of th this kind of character in folklore. Maybe it's the kind of a deeper fo folklore that I'm not familiar with. Uh, but I think in some later pieces pieces of media, I actually came across characters that have been clearly derived from this from this figure. Yeah, I don't know about the Jack and the Green. I don't know if that's a commonly known thing in Britain or what, but I've uh, I certainly wasn't familiar with it growing up or anything. I've always pictured it as like a kangaroo <laughs> for some reason. <laughs> I guess because isn't there like a lyric about his pouch or some some pocket or something? Uh huh. Yeah. Yeah, I think there is. A kangaroo wearing plaid clothes with a cane or something. <laughs> yeah, I always find funny some of the introductions that Ian does to this song in in live performances. I think I kind of the one that stuck in my mind uh, was was one where he said that this was a song about a character who represents nature and growth and blah 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 and finished the, the introduction with the words what utter tosh oh yeah that sounds familiar <laughs> but then there's another one where he you know says like it's a, about a spirit of the woodland I don't know if you believe in those but I know that I do but kind of the opposite <laughs> uh huh. I think it depends on his mood, really. Sure. He always played this song sitting down, which is interesting, because uh -huh. there's, there's not a lot of uh, songs he played like that live that I can think of. Yeah, probably not. Well, may maybe it lets him get into character more, mm -hmm. because there is a kind of a country squire character, perform performing character attached to this song, right. I think always has been. Track three, Cup of Wonder. May I make my fond excuses for the So this is a really good, like, overlooked song, I think. It's a really good one that I don't feel gets talked about very much. What do you think? Yeah, I don't, I'm, not, I'm not sure I saw a lot of discussion about this one. It's nice. I, I really like how, uh, again, talking about keys and chords and things like that, uh, we've got three keys in this song. Uh, half of the verse is in C, the next half of the verse is in D, so it just straight up modulates a tone upwards. And then uh, the chorus is uh, ostensibly in B-flat, from what I can gather. It's another very layered song. There's a lot of things happening, mm -hmm. especially uh, kind of during the main riff in the later parts of the song. There's this very kind of like fanciful, far-off sounding flute part in the back. Mm -hmm. Which is really interesting to listen to. I actually thought it was some kind of synth or something at first, but I think it's pretty clearly a flute. Yeah, I think there's on the coda, on the the, the very end, on the, on the fade out. I think it's probably there's there's a flute part, and then then the counterpoint is played by the portative organ. I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it creates this kind of it's kind of a world building thing to me, where it's kind of again like mm -hmm. this fanciful realm kind of thing. Where yeah, it's it's very very druidic, you know, celebration of all things pagan and mythological. Yeah, and with the talk of kind of like gathering around the table and that kind of thing, it reminds me a lot of kind of a, like I don't know, Lord of the Rings type sort of fellowship kind of thing, and that's kind of what it makes me think of. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, it's f funny that you mentioned it because when I was thinking about you know what what kind of. Uh, overall vibe this album has to me it kind of feels like a very hobbity album yeah know, like it's yeah all in the, it's all in the shire Every, everyone is very peppy right <laughs> yeah shire rock 
<laughs> Again, in this song, um, there's a very odd kind of a slapback delay slash echo on the piano, mm -hmm. which I find there's a lot of it uh, in the entire album on, on different instruments. There's a lot of it on vocals, on the flute, and this is kind of what what is a little jarring for me. This what feels to me like an like a strange recording decision because we're supposed to be uh, in the woods, right? The, the, this is supposed to be an out, outdoors album. And a lot of instruments sa sound like they are in a room by virtue of this, of, of this little delay, mm -hmm. uh, which it kind of sounds like a room, ref a room reflection. Yeah, I see what you mean. And I think there's, it's kind of case by case. I think there's other songs on the album where I really, really like it. Mm -hmm. it, it kind of gives it like a wind feeling like it's it's kind of like the music is just kind of one with the wind and I, I think there's uh, later songs where it's kind of more apparent that way but I see what you mean yeah I think it's similar to kind of the the same kind of delay effect they used on Pied Piper on the last album mm-hmm well uh, Pied Piper has a kind of a longer delay this is this one is very short mm -hmm. it's just like a slab back just one reflection so it doesn't much sound to me like the wind you know, not enough, not enough space in it to, to feel windy. But I you know your mileage may vary, as they say. I really like the bridge on this song with the piano solo and uh, mm -hmm. the ride bell drum part with like the the ride bell on the upbeat sounds really great. Uh huh. Yeah, the the, the parts are really inventive. It sounds like everyone just went all out, mm -hmm. bringing all kinds of you know, little ideas. It's a really sunny song, mm -hmm. and even especially with some of the lyrics like, uh, you know, rise in August, welcome corn. That may not be an exact quote, but something like that. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, <laughs> the, the, the line, lie in August, welcome corn, uh, yeah, directly line. follows, join in black December's sadness. Uh, yeah, it's, so it's there's true. A little, bit, a little bit of darker color in there. Yeah. But yeah, I agree. It's, it's a very, uh, again, like I said, it's a celebratory right. song. And... I wasn't sure at, at, at one point, uh, I wasn't sure about the phrase uh, pass the word and pass the lady. Mm -hmm. Or was it something like, you know, Grateful Dead's Jack Straw, we can share the women, we can share the wine. Uh, but uh, it kind of never felt like that to me. And uh, I think the consensus is that the lady is just, just representing nature. Yeah, I also saw it as kind of a, a euphemism in that lady is, maybe it's supposed to sound like ladle, is kind of how I've also always heard it. It's kind of like uh -huh. trying to sound like both at once or something. It could be. Yeah, but just on the surf, like the surface metaphor, I think, is nature, representing nature mm -hmm. and uh, the, the birthing force, the creative force of... Uh, of everything alive. How do you feel about like the choir parts, kind of ascending upwards? They're nice. They sort of connect it with the title song and uh, the choir parts. Fire at midnight, also. Yeah, the choir parts, the organ parts. There's, the, there's a lot of this kind of sound on this album. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the choir sounds a little funny to me, but uh, you know, I'm, I'm not going to complain. <laughs> Well, it's fanciful. It's you know pe people having fun, and uh, yeah. if it sounds a little bit silly, then well, who's to complain? Because no one's being hurt. 
Track for Hunting Girl. Uh, this is kind of one of the more one of the hornier songs on the album, mm-hmm. uh, and I think we'll see more of these from Anderson uh, in the coming albums. On this one, what I noticed uh, uh, an interesting sonic choice, uh, the kind of a trashy, very trashy cymbal sound on the first verse. Uh, yeah, it's a China. It's just is it just a China? Because to to me, it almost sounds like those untuned metal plates uh, that I think Bill Bruford and Jamie Moore uh, used to use in King Crimson. It could be something else. Uh, so just so just some pieces of metal being banged on, like obviously all symbols are pieces of metal being banged on, but I mean, just found objects, random, some yeah. kind of random metal plates. Or could be a could could be just a china, maybe with a slight crack in it, to give it that kind of ans- uh-huh. extra trashiness. I, I really like that choice. Yeah, this is a this is like a quintessential tall song to me, where if I had to pick a tall song uh, to sort of pre- show to uh-huh. somebody to introduce them to what the band were, this is a very good candidate for one of the ones I would pick, because uh, it's a fantastic song musically. And there's just so much about it that I think really speaks to like the heart of what Tull are and the way that this song goes. Do you think it's m- kind of musically? What 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 do you find about it that uh, that's musically quintessential? Well, I think just there's like a lot of the other tracks on the album. There's quite a bit of a progressive uh, rooting in it, I suppose. And mm-hmm. uh, I think there's actually quite a bit of sound design on it because it sounds like, especially with the guitar, there's been a lot of work put in to making the guitar sound the way it does on this track. It's quite interesting. There's very stocky mm-hmm. guitar, but then there's also kind of the I don't know if it's a wah pedal exactly, but it, it sort of sounds similar to that. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, there's quite a lot of layering on the guitars, mm-hmm. also, thing going on. Uh, with with sound design and narrative, the kind of galloping rhythm is very appropriate in, in yeah. this one. Drums are very interesting. There's a lot of crazy stuff happening. Uh-huh. Uh, lots of double bass again. There's kind of the whole march snare thing that are following the guitar parts. Yeah. And uh, like you mentioned, the china slash trash slash whatever, the way that Barry's hitting that to accentuate the vocals is really interesting. And I've always, I've tried uh-huh. for years to be able to do that exactly the way he does. And it's really difficult to kind of keep the beat while accentuating on the China like that. Mm-hmm. It could have been just overdubbed. Yeah, later. it could be. But I think he plays it live that way too. Uh-huh. Well, he could yeah. have learned it. But yeah, I, I, I know what you mean. I think there's a really good example of uh, John Glasscock's bass tone on this track also. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that sounds really cool. Uh, the intro, I think, uh, as told by Deep Palmer, I think she improvised it. Oh, yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, and kind of uh, Im- improvised the line, and Ian said it was perfect, and uh, she, she was just like, oh my god, what did I play? Yeah. <laughs> but kind of w- was able to repeat it and, and record. There's a lot of classical influence, like like there are on lots of other tracks on the album on this one as well. I think that keyboard uh-huh. part, whether improvised or not, it's kind of like a classic Palmer, uh, you know, kind of classical influenced keyboard part. Yeah, of course, because that's what Palmer brought mm-hmm. 
mo mostly in in total the the more complex the more classical more poised sort of sound another drum thing is there's a roto toms towards the end which is interesting uh -huh. oh i never I, I don't think i noticed so there's there's two different parts uh r the third sort of break right before the last verse so the fill there changes every time there's three different fills that get played and the final fill is a rototom fill and then at the very end of the song it's kind of hard to hear but there's a little bit of rototom at the end, very like last note there also that's cool I, i'll have to listen back oh okay yeah i think i just caught it that's in, uh, did he play uh, the road to Tom's live? Were he were they on his uh, on his? Drum I don't set? remember, but I would imagine so because uh, there's a lot of Roto Toms on uh, No Lullaby on Heavy Horses, so I would imagine he brought those for that. Uh huh. But yeah, this is probably an all-time great Tulsa track for me. It's one that I've never gotten tired of, and uh, I think it's one of their best kind of hard rocker songs as well. I think it works really well live. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's played a lot mm -hmm. live. I kind of. Maybe I may have gotten a little bit tired of it by way of being a life staple. Mm -hmm. uh, like that at, at the end, uh, like I mentioned, I think uh, about Bungle in the Jungle, uh, but uh, in the very end of Hunting Girl, there's a Piccadilly Third. Mm. So uh, the song is in E minor, but they finish on E major. And that's the kind of a true usage of, of a pick of the third, like the the last chord in the piece. Mm -hmm. The the one that wh where they sing it, the the choir chord, accompanied by I think the organ. It just turns into major. Is it the very last note? Yes, the yeah. very last note. Yeah, choir plus organ. Track five, ring out solstice bells. Now it's a solstice So this is an interesting one, because the way that I remember it, this wasn't really recorded for this album specifically. It was sort of recorded a little beforehand as like a Christmas single, basically. Like a Christmas song, which is kind of funny. And uh, it ended up on this album. So I, uh, I don't dislike this song necessarily, but it's not really my favorite on this album. I think a lot of it is kind of uncharacteristically cheesy, sort of. And it sticks out a bit on the album, but it, I mean, it's not bad. You know, there's things I like about it. I don't know. Like, to me, the the level of cheese is on par with the rest mm. of the album, really. Uh, I think it's the, this is one of those songs that kind of colors the album for for me. I don't feel it th that it doesn't mm. belong. I feel it like even maybe on the opposite, it's it encompasses. One of the feelings that th th this album is about. Mm -hmm. I like it. I I don't think there's much wrong in it. Much wrong with it. Uh, it is clearly Jethro Tull's attempt at a Christmas, at a Christmas single, mm -hmm. like the, the, the uh, and it's nice. It, it, it's got this nice idea by uh, that they made a Christmas song which is not about Christmas, right. which is about what became, ultimately became Christmas, but wasn't. And uh, I like that it's self-referential. You've got seven maids and seven druids right. dance and move in seven time, which is a little funny because uh, they made an attempt uh, at a producer's quest to record it in 4-4 four, four time, 
while still singing about uh, maids and druids moving in seven time, which didn't make any sense. Yeah, the label made them re-recorded in 4-4 and then they ended up not even using the their newly recorded version yeah it's uh, it's as a bonus track uh, on the wilson uh, reissue and yeah it's, it's it just sounds wrong yeah i agree i don't it's it also has the the, the chorus changed magic to bells. out magic yeah. bells yes because solstice was apparently too complicated a word uh, yeah, I think dumbing down is never a mm. good idea. So this is apparently like a an actually popular Christmas song in the UK, like even today. Do you know if that's true? Mm -hmm. I think yes. I think someone. I, th I think it pops up. I, I don't think it's as popular a rock Christmas song as uh, "Merry Christmas Everybody" by Slade, <laughs> but. I think it crops up on playlists. That's interesting because it's definitely not a popular Christmas song in America. I've, I'd sure. never heard this song in America. Um, I remember when I was a kid hearing Bungle in the Jungle and Walgreens Pharmacy, which to me as a kid was like unbelievable that you know, a pharmacy <laughs> in my small town in Texas would play Jethro Tull. But uh, yeah, I've, I don't think I've ever heard Solstice Bells as a Christmas song, so that's kind of funny to me. Mm -hmm. Uh, it's interesting about this song that uh, it's got actual bell sound. Yeah, I like that's my favorite part of the uh, of the song is kind uh -huh. of the outro with the bells. And given that the song is very major, uh, the bell sounds are never quite major, even if you play a major melody on them. Because the, uh, I don't know how, how how this works. I think a lot of information about bells uh, has just been. Bada Meinhoft into my information space lately. Like there was, I think, a thread on Reddit about Carol Jans and then David Bruce, uh, a composer who makes YouTube videos, made a video about bells yesterday, which I watched. And one of the interesting thing about the sound of a bell is that naturally, the naturally occurring um, harmonic series uh, in most sounds uh, contains uh, the major scale, which is why the major scale sound good, uh, sounds good to us. While bells uh, are a unique kind of object uh, that has a naturally occurring minor third in them. Hmm. So they always uh, sound a little bit wistful. And I think that this is one of the things that gives this song its character. Yeah, I agree on that. Because even though even though it is very positive, the it, it, the bell sounds and the uh, I think they reinforce it with that little jazzy moment in the middle, mm -hmm. uh, the, the the quiet jazzy part, which like I mentioned, quartal chords before. That's a quartal chord they're using there, and it's that kind of uh, unsettled feeling uh, it gives. Uh, which kind of br brings the whole song, th that little moment in the middle brings the whole song for me together mm. because uh, it creates a point of a, a point of introspection that I feel that the sound of a bell always elicits in a way. The uh, hand claps, do, do you know what I'm talking about, the hand mm -hmm. clap sounds? They sound yeah, very, so, uh, I don't know what the word is, they sound very distinct from the rest of the song for whatever reason. Yeah, they are. I, uh, I think there are also hand clubs in the in the middle of Pibrock, right? Is it? Are they there? The other song on this album that got that, that has hand claps. Okay, I'm not remembering. Could be. Uh -huh. Yeah. So it's not not like the the only place where we're hearing them, but yeah, they are 
there are a very clearly very specific sound choice for the, for this song mm. uh, that cr- create a feeling of a, of a collective dance. Yeah. You know? This is another song that I think it sounds very reflective, like you were talking about, kind of with that little delay effect. Mm-hmm. It sounds very shiny, I guess is the way I would describe it. Yeah, which is um, for a Christmas song, for a, for a song designed right, yeah. uh, to be heard at a darker time of the year. Of course, if we are in the northern hemisphere, it it works very well because it cre- creates the kind of counterpoint to what we see around us, to, to the cold, dark days and darker nights and things like that. So am I making this up or was there an animated music video for this song? I'm gonna have to look it up. Animated? Oh, I'm right. So this says BBC promo vid for Solstice Bells 1976. Wow. Yeah, I'm not sure if this was made specifically for the band or if it was cut together from some other thing, but it looks like it was broadcast. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, I'm looking at it. It's kind of silly. It doesn't really doesn't really look like the like the song sounds if you if you know what i mean yeah it like a lot of the scenes are i don't know a little mm, the video is a bit of a caricature to be honest yeah yeah it's funny i um i didn't have this in my notes at all i I literally just remembered it as you were talking i haven't thought about this in so long but uh there's a animated film of the lord of the rings which came out around this time yeah it it looks kind Mm -hmm. of similar to that uh I, I probably sound like I'm a big Lord of the Rings fan because I always bring them up on this uh, podcast, but I'm actually not. I don't really like it that much. Yeah, I've seen that uh, that that animated version. Uh, I think it's just the um, the way animation looked at the uh, a lot of animation looked at the time. Yeah, for sure. Again, like I said, I, I don't hate it. I don't dislike it, but it doesn't it doesn't stick out a lot for me. It feels a little bit stitched on just the fact that it was done beforehand. Although I I do agree that mm-hmm. it kind of matches the theme a bit, but. So, so something about the shininess, it, it kind of makes it stick out, I feel like, compared to a lot of the other tracks. Yeah, also doesn't really make sense to listen to it uh, if you're, whether you're listening to the album in the autumn or in the spring. Yeah, that's true. And the rest of the album is not really Christmassy. So in that regard, yes, it's, it's a little bit of an outlier. Hmm. Track six, Velvet Green. Uh, this one is probably to me feeling like one of the quintessential Tal songs mm-hmm. because um, yeah, funny that uh, the quintessential song for you is Hunting Girl and on this album and for me is Velvet Green because th- these are both very horny songs mm-hmm. <laughs> and but there's so much in this one, I think the, the, there's a br- brilliant little uh, video on YouTube where this the audio for this song is annotated with all the time signature changes that are happening. Oh, that's cool. Uh, yeah, so you can f- you can follow the bars that are bars of five eight and six eight and two eight and four eight and seven eight and nine eight, and it's not a proggy kind of a complex type time signature because normally in prog rock you would choose a complex time signature or a complex um, com- compound time signature and then play around with it and then create a piece that works with this one while here uh, it's more like a medieval approach it's just a melody and whether the melody uh, takes up five beats or seven beats or four beats doesn't really matter 
because uh, the signature is the melody, not the other way around. And then it kind of resolves into a, m a more simple, ostensibly more simple 13-8, uh, which works as a 7 plus 6, and then becomes a 4-4 four, four verse with a little 5-4 pieces in the chorus, where, so the units of the time signature get bigger. And yeah, the complexity in, in this one is really, really fascinating. Yeah, it's an excellent song, I think. And it's also one of my favorite Tull songs ever, I think. Uh, and it's, another, again, another one where there's a lot of things happening. There's just so much that happens, like in the space of, you know, what, the five or six minutes of the song. Mm -hmm. Lots of different sections, lots of different kind of uh, world building, I think. And I think particularly the... Uh, sort of the the central verses where it's just Ian and the acoustic guitar mm -hmm. that does a really good job of kind of building a place with the, the lyrics about the long grass flowing in the evening cool I think the way they do the sound design on that part it really kind of sells that image and feeling yeah this, uh, with the sound design I think the portative organ that uh, features on this song a lot uh, th this is one of those places where you can hear how it uh, works very well with the flute yeah there's a, a lot of different instruments on this song. There's marimba in the beginning. Yeah. And at the end, there's also xylophone a little later on. Uh, there's a lot of medieval percussion that you mentioned earlier that Barry kind of took out just for this song. So uh, when they did it live, they mentioned doing uh, tabor and nakers, mm -hmm. which I don't know anything about, but they're apparently medieval percussion. Yeah, so it's not play the entire song is not played on a standard kit. Yeah, and I think you can you, hear you, it pretty clearly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they, they've got kind of a kind of a dull, thumpy s s sort of sound, which puts you in mind of a sort of a m medieval court. Yeah. So if you watch the uh, Golders Green performance from 1977, Songs from the Wood Tour, uh, there's a whole sort of intro where they show Barry dragging out a second drum set, which is made up of these medieval sort of percussion uh -huh. things just to play this song on, which is pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, it's kind of interesting to me how this very complicated prog folk composition, uh, which is this song, it kind of takes us back, in a way, to songs like Mother Goose on Equilong. Yeah. yeah, I agree. Like the, the more the, the acoustic songs with odd percussion uh, and uh, electric arrangements uh, inserted inside the acoustic texture, even the, the final chord in the song is kind of, to me, sounds like something taken out of the Aqualung toolbox because we've got a lot of interesting uh, final chords for final sounds in the songs there. But this one is so much more advanced. Mm -hmm. It yeah. is so much more of a, of a scored piece of music where everyone is, is playing a complex part and knows it very well. No one's improvising really. Yeah, I love that kind of middle bridge also with the mm -hmm. poor pipe organ is a, a very big star in that part, but mm -hmm. it's a very, it's kind of a whimsical sounding thing, but it, it kind of fits in with, I think, the optimistic kind of joyful image of the rest of the album and it, it works really well. Yeah. Uh, in the lyrics, I like um, the throwback to Bedite and Loveless because there's the line, who's a young girl's fancy and an old maid's dream. Oh, yeah. Uh, because <laughs> and and Bedite and Loveless before. is uh, a young man's fancy and an old man's dream. That's funny. I don't know how I never noticed that before. 
I think in that uh, middle bridge part, I think right before the acoustic guitar comes back, uh-huh. there's a very quick, just single bar with mandolin and flute, if you know what I yeah. mean. Mm-hmm. And yeah. uh, I, that's just one of those classic tall things that they break out, where they'll just break out some completely different sort of scene that just is around for one or two bars, but it, you always uh, look forward to it. Yeah, I know what you mean. And uh, in this song, I, th- I think the kind of space that's built around us uh, works really well. Because uh, to me, there's nothing here that um, that I'm confused about when I'm listening to. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think the, the recording in, uh, on this particular song is, is excellent. I really love the electric guitar during the verses also. Mm-hmm, the kind of the delayed little, little bits. Yeah, there's they use it uh-huh. as kind of a, thr- a thrust to bring in with the chords to kind of propel mm-hmm. it along. But they also have that little line, the da 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 da, da kind of under the little uh-huh. uh, filter, yeah. whatever it is. Yeah, that's a very again a classic tall line. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love it, and I think the lyrics are just so great at kind of building out this world with the whole line about. Uh, uh, you know, the dusty ride up to the north where your reputation and all that you're worth. I love uh, that kind of mm-hmm. thing. Yeah, this song is probably you know, a good contender for one of my favorites on this album. Mm-hmm. I agree. Track seven, The Whistler. So come on, I'm a whistler. I have a fight and I'm to play. Get ready, So this is another great song, I think. And uh, this one's kind of funny because I it, I feel like this song should have been bigger than it was. I don't know if that's uh-huh. kind of a just just me talking, but I feel like this song is a bit underappreciated, and that's something about it. It feels like it should have been kind of a bigger song for Jethro Tull, like in the wider community, but I, I feel like it kind of wasn't. And maybe maybe it had too much of a folk rock kind of feel yeah. to it. But yeah, it kind of reminds me a little bit of uh, some song some songs on Heavy Horses already, like Journeyman. Hmm maybe or rover it's got a similar kind of feel to it yeah and this one again the, 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 there's an interesting use of quartal chords sus chords in the very beginning because the intro takes us between g sharp minor and uh, c sus 4 or f sus 2 depends on how you look at it but again it creates in the context of this album these kind of chords these kind of sounds they create a more medieval kind of feeling rather than jazzy because you mm-hmm. can use those to create a jazzy feel but other than in Solst- in the middle of solstice bells we don't really have anything that sounds jazzy here instead it's a very kind of early music color that they're using yeah i feel like there's a lot of sound design again going into this kind mm-hmm. of song where there's kind of a lot of synth parts where you have kind of like the heartbeat type thing sort of in the intro and then, mm-hmm. of course, during the uh, later on during the verses, where you have kind of the very echoey synth line that's very obviously a synthesizer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like and and the the places were after the um, the little jig, mm-hmm. which again is in a different key to to the rest of the song, and sometimes in two different keys to the rest of the song. Uh, that there's a a part of a glockenspiel yeah yeah that also creates a, a very cool sound design sound design effect one of the things that always uh interested me about this song is the way the drums sound on this song is really interesting 
And this is one of the uh, the main things that I noticed was different between this uh, the original version and the Steve Wilson mix. Mm-hmm. In the original version, the drums were mixed very low, like they were not very easy to hear. And as a result, they sounded a bit cluttered because it's actually quite a busy drum part, but it, you can't really hear it that well. And uh, in the Steve Wilson mix, they brought it up a decent amount. It's it's still kind of mixed a bit low, but uh, it's louder than it was before. So that was always interesting to me how they chose to do that, how the, the drums are mixed so low. Yeah, uh, I think I saw it mentioned that uh, the mix on the Whistler uh, is noticeably different on the, on the Steve Wilson mix. Mm. Yeah, the echo on the main synth line sounds very different on the remix. I remember uh, noticing that immediately when I first heard it. Mm-hmm. Well, may- maybe that's uh, that could be because uh, some of the effects I think uh, are recreated by Steven digitally. Yeah. As far as I know, I think he spoke about that in some of the booklets or maybe interviews as well. This was another song that had a music video. That's worth mentioning. Uh-huh. Um, it's not a very exciting one. It's pretty boring, but it's just kind of the band in a acting like they're recording and uh, a couple of shots of Ian like face to the camera doing the lyrics, but it's nothing. Uh, Nothing super exciting. Yeah, uh, I like uh, in this one that there's another throwback to another earlier song. Yeah, to Summer Day Sands. Uh, yeah, Summer Day Sands. So you know we've get we're, we're starting to get continuity uh, in Ian Anderson's lyrical universe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I always yeah I, mean, I guess that was intentional. And maybe Summer Day Sands is just a phrase that he often comes up with. I don't know. A phrase that he wakes up in the morning with. Yeah, could be. Yeah, I mean, I like this song. You know, I think a lot of Toll fans like this song, but it, uh, I don't know, it, something about it just, it makes me feel like it should have been bigger for the band, and it wasn't. Mm-hmm. I feel like I, I could imagine, you know, a, a different kind of world where this became a fairly big Toll song that most people knew. Yeah, I'm not, I'm, I'm not really sure, because um, by virtue of, of that little jig uh, that's used as a bridge, there it's uh, it has a very distinct folk rock kind of a celtic folk rock feel mm-hmm. to it and uh, this is normally what people associate toll with yeah maybe maybe they do track eight pibroch cap in hand There's a light in the house in the woods in the valley uh, this is like probably the darkest song on the album. Do you agree? Yeah, yeah it's like the long epic of the album. Mm-hmm. Uh, I really like the arrangement on this one, although the mandolin tremolos uh, in some of the in some of the spots kind of sound like alarm clocks to me. <laughs> <laughs> but again, that's not a that's not an arrangement choice. That's a recording choice. Uh, I think. Um, the guitar, the guitar intro by Martin is inspired by bagpipes, specifically the bagpipes yeah. playing a piece of bagpipe music called Pibroch, which is a solo bagpipe improvisation. And I really like this song. I think the verses in it are kind of kind of remind me of Stormwatch already. Mm. This has a, that kind of feel to it. And one of the best things I think about the harmony and melody in this song is the diminished chord that substitutes the dominant in the second to last chord. Second line, fourth line, there's this thought in the head of the man, the word head, and uh, bringing you love in the cap in his hand, the word cap, the the, the chord that um, 
comes on these in these two places and other places in the, in, in the other verse. It's just such a beautiful feel. Mm. Uh, melodically and harmonically, uh, it creates such a wonderful tension. Uh, I like uh, De Palma's contributions in this, like the counterpoint, synthy and organy uh, places. I think to me, th these ones are like the, the characters' memories of the days of yore, because uh, in, in in this song, the main character discovers that his wife left him for for another man, and another man took place in the house he, he once lived in. And there's a lot of narrative things uh, in the music, I feel, in this song. Um, the break, uh, the, 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 the guitar break, I, I mean, uh, feels like the sort of internal, t internal turmoil of that person. Hmm. And the counterpoint keyboards parts are like the, the memories. But then we've got that little folk dance uh, moment the flute solo. Yeah, I love that. Uh, uh, with the flanged flute, which sounds like, I don't know, is it a reel that's played a little swung or a hornpipe? Some kind of uh, Scottish tune. Uh, clearly, it's clearly written by Ian, but uh, it obviously references a specific sound. And first of all, I don't really get the flanger on the flute there because it just sounds weird a little bit. Uh, and it, some some of the lines have also have some kind of, to me, sounds like a misapplied room effect. Uh, but just narratively, I'm a little bit confused by that, by, the, by that moment, because we've got the, all, this, all this entire story of a person in turmoil, of a person uh, whose past is, he, he will never be able to reconnect with. And then this folk dance, what is that? Is that that person going to the pub and getting wasted? <laughs> yeah, I know what you mean. I've, uh, so like I've mentioned before, I'm not really one who reads lyrics usually. So uh, I've never really uh, thought that much about the, the narrative behind the song. Uh -huh. I musically, the, the bridge that you're talking about is my favorite part of the song. I mean, not, not just kind of the mandolin flute part, but really the whole, uh -huh. like, the entire thing surrounding it with kind of the synth, you know, mm -hmm. bridge and that kind of thing. My, I mean, my guess is it was just music that was just put together and there wasn't a lot of thought put into it, but uh, I don't know. I, I, the uh, the guitar intro is very hypnotizing. Yeah. It, that's kind of the way I would describe it. And it's also interesting that the drums during the verses, it's very, like, jazz swingy. Uh -huh. Which is really rare for Barry. He doesn't typically play that way, so I always thought that was kind of interesting. Yeah, well, uh, songs in this tempo aren't really very typical for Tell, so yeah, I think it's just one way of making it uh, slightly more interesting during that little swing. I think the the folk dance, the the, the flutes and mandolin moment with hand claps. Yes, uh, in this song, is, this is probably my least favorite part. <laughs> but mm -hmm. I really like uh, the keyboards part coming in afterwards and bringing us to a more somber mood again. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it, this song, it's, again, I don't dislike it. I don't dislike any song on this album, but uh, I think this one is, it gets too long for me. And I, mm -hmm. I kind of lose, I kind of lose my focus on it because of that, I think. Yeah, I know, I, I know what you mean, but 
as I listened to it again, I, I enjoyed it a lot. Mm. Just lots of repetition of the guitar part. Yeah, but on, on the other hand, this is like the, the only dark moment on the album. Yeah. And I imagine maybe some people who really like the cheer of the rest of the record don't like it for that reason. I like it for that reason. Mm -hmm. Because it gives me, you know, uh, a rest from the jaunty kind of mood of the rest of the songs. Right. Track 9, Fire at Midnight. I believe in fires at midnight When the dogs have all been fed A golden tongue on the mantle A broken gun beneath the bed This is a great short little song, I think. Uh, very much a homely song, maybe one of the most homely tall songs. Yeah, I, I like the choral start to it. Uh, oh yeah. It, it, it says the mood really well. And there's a, another version of this song, uh, which begins with the with the drum and guitar part, which just sounds kind of jarring. The little guitar swell, kind of uh, mm -hmm. before the bridge comes in is interesting. If you know what I mean, where the, the vocals end and the kind of bridge begins. Oh yeah, yeah, I took a note of that. Yeah, that, that little fade-in guitar note that transitions into the bridge uh, is, mm -hmm. is a very great sonic touch. And I love the bridge, it's a great like folk jam. Yeah, uh, the instrumental part I think in this song is, is my favorite part. Because mm -hmm. I don't really much care about, uh, about this song. As, uh, as an idea, it's like too homely. I feel like it's a little bit hard to write a compelling song about an idyllic situation with no internal conflict. Hmm. It's um, the lyrics have always thrown me off a little bit just because of the mention of taking off your makeup because it it kind of uh -huh. sounds like it's a it's a person singing about uh, themselves, but then it, it sort of sounds like he switches to speaking to a woman. That always kind of threw me off, unless the man is wearing makeup. I don't know. Uh, I think it was specifically there when Ian talks about it in, in the booklet notes. I think it's specifically written so as not to be, um, so as to be applicable to any time. Mm -hmm. So it's not a historical song and not a modern song. It's a both mm -hmm. kind of song. These are things that have always happened and will always be happening, or at least uh, that's what. That's what Ian imagines this to be. Yeah. A very strange thing about this one is why is its ending so abrupt? Yeah, I agree. It's a bit abrupt, especially for the end of the album. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's just always gives me a little bit of a double take. Is that all? It kind of sounds like there could have been another verse they cut or something. Yeah, or at, or at least some kind of drawn-out reverb or something. Mm -hmm. One thing on the bridge, kind of similar to Backdoor Angels on Warchild, is there's a lot of kind of hangs where they kind of hang a little over a cliff and then come back in. Uh-huh. Yeah, I know what you mean. But I, I like it overall. It's uh, To me, it almost kind of feels like a bridge into Heavy Horses, because even though Heavy Horses isn't as idyllic as this song, uh -huh. it's kind of dealing more with, you know, less fanciful fantasy stuff and more kind of, you know, homebody, realistic stuff. Yeah, I know what you mean. It, it could, could be viewed as that don't really have much else about this one so we'll end this one as abruptly as the song itself sure <laughs> so in conclusion for me i think i mentioned you know this is like one of the all-time top great toll albums for me and there's not any song on here that i would say that i dislike there's 
maybe a couple points that I'm not thrilled with. And the only two that I could really point out would be Pib Rock is kind of too long for me, and I kind of lose my focus. And then um, Solstice Bells is a little odd, but uh, I, I mean, I can, you know, I can work with any of them. And uh, I'm happy with pretty much all the songs on here. The favorites I would mention would uh, be probably Hunting Girl, Velvet Green. And if I had to only pick a third one, I would maybe say Cup of Wonder. Uh-huh. Uh, well, to me, as I already mentioned, uh, people care about this album tremendously. Uh, as well they should, so I don't have to. <laughs> <laughs> so giving this album love is on you guys I trust you to keep doing that and to leave me with my preference for kind of Ian's acerbic melancholy sneer uh, but uh, if I were to pick favorites on this one I think it would be Pibrock just because it's melancholy <laughs> uh, in contrast to the rest and Velvet Green just because mm. it's so brilliant and least favorite well, I'll just say probably Fire at Midnight is my least favorite. Mm. And overall, yes, like you said, uh, to me in the Falk trilogy, this one is my is the one that's l the least interesting to me for the reasons I've already explained. And it is not one of my top Jethro Tull albums because the, the top Jethro Tull albums are the ones I want to come back to. And this one kind of lacks that for me. Hmm. But yeah, I know I'm in the minority. Leave your angry comments. And yes, I, gi I, I give everyone permission to be angry and at me. For <laughs> I'm sure they'll be furious. This I would call this one the best of the folk trilogy for me, but my opinions on the next two albums have changed a lot over time in a positive direction. And so I'll kind of talk more about that on those episodes. Um, but yeah, this... This is number one for me of those three, and uh, it's kind of hard because I don't want to, you know, spoil some of the preview of the next two albums, so I'll, I'll kind of save a lot of discussion on those for those episodes. But uh, this is the one of those three that I come back to the most, and that kind of gives me the most pleasure in listening to. Thanks, everybody, for listening. As always, feel free to give us a like, a rating, a review on whatever platform you're listening on. We appreciate all the listens, and we'll see you in two weeks with Heavy Horses. Bye.